Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Ed Brubaker's in the house, Jimmy. Uh, big bibliography. Why don't you hit us with some highlights and yeah, let's get the show on the road. Should have recorded the bibliography ahead of time. <laughs> it's like a monologue. Um, starts out as an indie creator. We know him from Low Life. Looked at that on a previous episode. Goes to DC. Catwoman with Darwin Cook. How about that for a revamp? Uh, Gotham Central with Michael Lark. Uh, Marvel Comics, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Daredevil, Iron Fist, X-Men. This is all who's who. And then he goes and starts doing creator-owned work. <laughs> so we get things like recently Reckless and Pulp, um, Killer Be Killed, Criminal. I think people uh, know that one. Velvet, Fade Out, Fatal. I could go on and on. Yeah, yeah you're going to embarrass Unbelievable. The Ed, <laughs> thanks for coming by, man. I like how I forgot about a bunch of those. <laughs> here's, here's the here's the question. You know, we asked Brian K. Vaughn the question, and he also said he was your nemesis, man. So maybe you could uh, have a clarifying answer. Uh, tell us. In fact, it's not a question. Tell us what's so much cooler about comics than Hollywood. We're taking notes, oh, by the way. Fuck. So many, so many things. It's funny when I first moved out to L.A. to like uh, work in like film and TV because I'd been flying down from Seattle like a couple times a year for meetings about stuff that never happened. And I just I just thought, all right, I'm going to have to just be there to make it happen somehow, which, you know, great success, whatever like that. That didn't work either. Um, but I remember the first week I was there, I went out to lunch with Brian and Robert Kirkman and they both were like, what are you doing? you do great in comics. Like you're crazy to want to be in a writing room and you don't even understand the freedom that you'll be giving up, et cetera, et cetera, which are like two of the most successful like TV people that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, uh Oh, what's going on here. And I just thought you guys just know some secret. You want to keep me out of the clubhouse. I remember like a year or two later, I was like, you guys were so right. Um, you know, it's great. I I've been up from five 30 this morning, like writing comics and, um, you know, I'm on one Hollywood job right now, but it's, it's, you know, mostly it's writing actually. And like talking to other writers or rewriting what they're writing a little bit. So it's not so much the, the giant time suck of a writer's room. Our whole writer's room for this Batman cartoon was only six weeks long and about three weeks of it was really intensive. And the rest of it was like breaking the episodes into outlines. So was very work related and you know felt almost close to comics in a way because i guess because it's cartoons the, the 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 guy who was making low life comics did, was he preparing for this like like did you foresee this was this part of the plan i mean it, frankly was he even working for the big two part of the plan because you seem pretty pretty entrenched oh. in, in the indie scene um yeah i mean i grew up as like a you know a I, I guess I was mostly a Marvel zombie. I was like one of those Marvel zombie kids who read everything Marvel put out and then read like four things DC put out. Like I would always pick up like Jimmy Olsen books when I'd see them in like the quarter bins or whatever. And I liked Batman and Legion of Superheroes hit at the exact right time of my childhood, I guess, when you discover like the way Mike Grell draws like the back of someone's calves on someone's arms. Um, like and the the weird costume designs like there were some there were some dc books i was super into but yeah from the time i discovered like like underground and independent comics and what we called alternative comics back then um i don't think i had any desire i went from wanting to like when i was a kid i wanted to like pencil the x-men which i didn't even really like the x-men it was more like um 
like everybody was just into the X-Men when I was a little kid. And I remember I would buy it all the time and I would just think there's so many characters I can't. And I was like super into Spider-Man and like Daredevil characters like that. Um, but yeah, by the time I was a teenager, I had no desire to like write stuff like that. And even when I got my first job writing a superhero comic, I was trying to talk the editor out of hiring me because I was like, I, I don't have any stories. I, I don't have any Batman ideas. And, you know, here I am 20 something years later. Um, but uh, he was like, well, you just wrote a mystery comic for us. If you can write a mystery, you can write a Batman story. He's the world's greatest detective. And I thought about it. My first pitch was like, Batman gets addicted to speed. So, you know. <laughs> that was a feisty 90s. Yeah, exactly. See that fit in there. That's such an interesting perspective on Batman because I never think of Batman as mystery. Obviously, the detective is all we hear about, but that implies solving of mysteries and it's kind of a different genre and certainly one um ed that you know very well and have yeah. talked about <laughs> written written in um interesting to apply like mystery to batman i thought you were going well, to say let's... the speed part man because like i hear you need some no dose <laughs> to stalk the night i get it yeah he doesn't really want to sleep right yeah. um yeah it's I mean, the stuff that was the most fun for me working for like Marvel and DC, I mean, actually Marvel was, I had a much, a much more fun in some ways at DC, like doing Catwoman and Gotham Central, like when, when I was working in the bad office for like five years or whatever, and we got to revamp Catwoman completely, like they offered me that book. And I was trying to turn it down. And so I came up with a bunch of reasons like, you know, well, you wouldn't let me do this or you wouldn't let me do this. And the editor was like, do all of that. And I was like, well, we need a new artist. We need to redesign her. We, you know, I, I don't want it to be like this women in prison thing and all exploitative. And so I keep trying to talk them out of hiring me for things. And then they would hire me anyway. That was kind of how I got in at Vertigo. Like I, I had pitched a bunch of Vertigo-y like things because I wanted to pay my rent. And, um, and, you know, it was like me trying to be like Neil Gaiman or Garth Ennis or something. It wasn't really me. And I remember telling uh, Shelly Roberg at the time, who's Shelly Bond now, um, I, I was like, I just feel like the kind of stuff I want to do, you guys won't be interested in. And she's like, well, what is this thing that you want to do that's so different than what we do? And I'm like, just like a mystery comic with like a private eye. Because <laughs> I was just really obsessed with like Ross McDonald books and Raymond Chandler at that point. And I just wanted to see if I could do something like that in the American market. And it was like approved a week later. So I was like, oh, fuck, they called my bluff. Now I got to actually do this. And it started like a whole career um, in a way. But like when you're actually writing Batman, you can't really have Batman solving mysteries too much. It's, it's you know, it doesn't leave enough room for him swinging around and fighting. Like fans always talk about him being this great detective, but they want like one page of that and like 19 pages of cool Batman shit, especially the artists are like, yeah, maybe not so many pages of Bruce Wayne talking to people. Um, those don't sell as well. <laughs> I, I like lingering on this mystery thing for a minute because I always say like, I don't really believe in too many rules when it comes to to comics. Let's, let's, let's apply it to the only thing I care about. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I say, don't be boring and don't be confusing. And there are of course exceptions to both of those. And the exception to don't be confusing is the mystery. And it's, it's, it would be, Again, I, I think of Batman as being the one where that would be really interesting and probably frustrating <laughs> to readers if you were halfway through the Batman story and it was kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on or how we got here or who I can trust. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, that's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to work on. Um, when I was there, we had like this group, it was me and Greg Rucka and Devin Grayson and Chuck Dixon. I, I think that was the four of us. Um, and I can't remember who was writing Kelly. Somebody was writing Batgirl at the time. And we would have these summits like once a year where we'd sort of map out what everybody was doing and when we were going to converge for an event or something. And we did this event where Bruce Wayne got accused of murder and it went on for like a year and a half or something like that, which I was just kind of blown away that they did it, but it became much less fun to do because it was like, you know, Bruce Wayne's Bruce Wayne breaks out of prison, Batman's full time. And it just became like a long running event. And it just kind of killed my enthusiasm for that, that part of it, because it was like, well, it's not either thing kind of, it's like, like the fun of Batman is like the weirdness of this fucking like, well, now they always say he's a billionaire. Back then we called him a multimillionaire. <laughs> Just seemed a little bit more down to earth. Um, but uh, but yeah, he's like, you know, going out and solving these crimes. He's like this alter. It's like you can see why comic fans love him. He's like this one, this guy who obviously can't get over his childhood. And it's like, here we all are surrounded by our. so you can see why comic fans are super into into batman but um you know it it was a fun time to be there but yeah them letting us revamp catwoman and letting us do gotham central where you could actually do mystery stories because batman's only in like a panel or two you know like that was that was way more fun let's talk uh catwoman for a minute and your collaborator darwin cook do you have any good darwin cook stories for us oh yeah, I mean, that we could fill an hour and a half with that. Yeah, that was a crazy one. I had seen a few pages of Batman Ego uh, internally, like years before it got published. I think, I don't know if he was working on that over the course of a long time, or they were just trying to figure out how to get approval to publish it, because it was so weird. Um, Bruce Tim recently told me a good Darwin story, which was that when he was working on the cartoons for them, he went to like WonderCon or something uh, or some LA convention to uh, show his sample pages to editors and he showed Archie Goodwin his stuff. And Archie Goodwin was like, oh, this stuff's good, but it's it's a lot like the Batman animated show. You should go talk to the, ki- the guys running like the kids side of DC. And then he showed it to someone else. I can't remember who, like Walt Simonson or somebody who was like, oh my God, this work is amazing. You got to show this stuff to Archie. And he brought Darwin back over to Archie. And Darwin was like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> and Archie Goodwin was like, oh, wait. So I so I said, it's not what we're looking for. So you tried to go to someone else. To <laughs> Which I was just like, wow, Archie Goodwin being like the hammer is like, because you always hear of him as like the sweetest guy in comics ever. And, you know, I remember him when I used to work at uh, booths at the convention, like when I was a teenager, like he would remember me from year to year and we would talk about comics and he would give me like writing tips and stuff. But the idea of Archie Goodwin being like the guy like, listen, son, I was just like, wow, (laughs) that must have hurt. (laughs) That's like worse than getting one of those angry postcards from Alex Toth where he's like ripping you apart for, you know, being great at what you do. But um, yeah, Darwin uh, just, he happened to be sharing a studio with like Chip Zdarsky and Cameron Stewart and these other people that I knew. Cameron was like our inker on Dead Enders. Uh, 
And so Cameron brought me over to meet him. And I had just been given Catwoman like the week before that. And I was trying to figure out how to revamp the costume and the look and what the book was going to be like. And uh, they just came over and I started talking to Darwin and I was like, hey, what are you working on now? And he had that uh, big Justice League thing he did, uh, New Frontier. He'd already drawn, I think, the first issue or so, but there was like this long contract negotiation going on. And so he had this window of time. Uh, and I just said, look, you know, why don't you help me revamp the character? We'll redesign it. We'll, you know, launch this new thing. You do the first storyline and then you go back to your your other thing. Does that have any interest to you? And he was super up for it because you know, he hadn't actually been published yet. No one really knew who he was. So I just kind of met him early and we liked a lot of the same books and stuff. And we talk when we talk about comics art, you know, he was like, you know, like you guys and me, like I get the sense there's a whole generation of us who grew up just kind of obsessing about everything about comics. But like I could be on a phone call with him and, you know, looking at back then, you'd have to have things like faxed or photocopied and sent to you. And I'd be looking at like character sketches that the editor had mailed me. And I'm like, oh, your ink line here looks kind of like Lee Elias. And he'd be like, Lee Elias? How do you know who that is? And I'm like, I'm a comic book guy. Of course I know. <laughs> but it was like, it was amazing to have that, that kind of collaborator who, he didn't always follow the script, but you never cared. Because it's like, if he wouldn't, if I would say, oh, she's on the top of a moving train and she leaps off and jump and, you know, jumps onto the police station and he'll turn that into like a four page sequence. And I was like, oh, wow, I was supposed to be one page. Um, but, you know, it looks amazing and it's got this awesome double page spread. And, you know, he took the ideas that, that uh, I had for the Catwoman revamp and just you know, I think within a day was like sketching, you know, what she would look like with the belt, uh, with her whip as her belt, like down around her hips. And he gave it this really cool, you know, retro vibe. All I said was like aviator mask with, you know, goggles and cat ears. And uh, my wife had pointed out that Emma Peel wore what was called a cat suit. And I'm like, oh, well, we have to put her in a cat suit, <laughs> obviously. Um, but the idea was to try to make her look, you know, like sexy, but not sexist. And so he was super down with that. And he did character design uh, pages. I think some of them are reprinted in some of the DC books, but he did full like animation, you know, turnaround design character stuff for all the major characters. It was kind of amazing to see. I had no one I'd ever worked with that had done that before. Do you ever provide uh, thumbnails for, for people that you uh, work with? When I first started doing comics, I would do that. I would at, either at the bottom of the page, I would draw like the grid and like some basic compositions, or I would actually do like my version of, you know, here's, here's where the character should be and all that stuff. And I remember Michael Lark uh, saying, don't do that. That's like the fun part. And I realized that was why I was trying to do it because like, I love comics and I loved like, drawing comics I, I feel like i spent like half of my life drawing comics while not ever being satisfied with what i did but like the layouts and the inking were the only parts that were fun <laughs> everything else was work <laughs> and so i was like trying to take one of the fun parts away from them um i'm pretty i write scripts for other artists i mean i only work with two i work with javi with uh, marcus martin and uh and uh Sean Phillips now, so I know exactly who I'm working for, but I write scripts for them 
not much more detailed than I wrote scripts for myself. I'll indicate if something needs to be a full tier or if we're like over someone's shoulder looking at something else or in like their POV. Um, but but uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I thought early on I would be like that Harvey Kurtzman kind of thing where you do all the sketches for everybody. But then you read interviews with all those guys and so many of them were so frustrated by that too. Like Wally Woods, like, I don't need you to tell me how to draw a comic book page, Harvey. <laughs> it's interesting how much you, uh, you know, like, like, like talking about Darwin Cook, whenever you get this Catwoman revamp assignment and you kind of reach out to him early on as like, let's, let's collaborate on this. When I think of like the cartoonist, and you know you're coming from this. You're the writer artist of Low Life, and, and you know you yeah. start out as this cartoonist. I think of us as all being antisocial and control <laughs> freaks and all of these things. Yeah. And you know, not only are you collaborating with artists, but you've co-written with a number of writers, which that yeah. doesn't always happen. That's kind yeah. of rare. Um, yeah. How how has that experience been? Is that something that's natural for you? Did you have to kind of work to like, you know, trust uh, that process with another creator? It's it's pretty rare for me because yeah, I'm like a total control freak. Um, you know, I, I like to see even like layouts and pencils and stuff on a lot of stuff so I can give possible feedback though. Everybody, I mean, I'm working with two of the best artists in comics now, so I don't have these issues, but in the old days, like, like sometimes you'd be working with a foreign artist for like a Marvel book. When I drew the, when I wrote the X-Men, uh, one of my artists, uh, English was not his first language at all. I think, Malaysian maybe um and I had a care I had written that a character was walking down the hall of a spaceship m moping and he drew him mopping <laughs> which is hilarious because there's you know hermetically sealed spaceship um <laughs> yeah like with a mop and a bucket and I was just like the hilarious thing was that it was so close to deadline that Marvel almost wanted to publish it anyway I was like no 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 <laughs> cannot have a guy with a mop and a bucket on the on the spaceship um i i go off on tangents a lot that's fine and i and i can update this to a very specific uh, another example of maybe the cartoonist uh i don't know antisocial behavior yeah. that we exhibit from time to time um i heard in another interview with you you tell this story about a uh, when gotham central was coming up and you were figuring out titles and pitching it to janet Kahn. Uh, oh yeah I wonder if you could tell us about Janet Kahn, because I've never heard anybody talk about her in any of our interviews. And I think oh, wow. of her historically as like some really influential things that she at least was connected to. What was yeah. your experience working with her? Can you talk about her and her contribution to comics at all? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the reason we were able to call it Gotham Central is because of... Um, is because of that meeting that we were at like everybody loved the idea of the book of me and greg and michael doing this thing about the gotham cops but they didn't want to let us call it gotham central because they thought the title sounded boring and so i sketched out the logo with like the police badge and everything and she had showed up for a batman summit i think the one where we were doing that bruce wayne murderer thing um and she sat next to me and i was just like well, i'm gonna take advantage of this so i like we, we there was a moment we were talking about the book and I said yeah and we want to call it Gotham Central and here's the logo and she was like oh that's great and I, I remember Mike Carlin had been pushing us to call it Gotham Murder City <laughs> <laughs> which I was like for one thing Detroit is Murder City <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah that was uh, that was an interesting thing where it was like I definitely probably 
I guess I got lucky. No one, no one, you know, we didn't get in trouble for it, but technically like going over your boss and his boss's head to the head of the company is not really done. But I was just like, you know, again, like cartoonist, such a control freak here. Greg and I have figured out a way to do this book in a control freak way, actually, where we're going to team up once a year on a story and then each do our own thing. So we get out of each other's way in case, you know, we devised a method to work together as two people who usually are used to working alone. So um, I just was so desperate for the book to be what we wanted it to be. Like we waited around for a year to get Michael Lark to draw it and they were pitching other artists to us. And we were like, no, it's gotta be Michael. And he was on some Hawkman thing that was taking him forever. But yeah, Jeanette was, Jeanette was, uh, was, I, I thought she was a lot of fun. She was a bit kooky. Like her best friend in life apparently is Quincy Jones. And um, yeah, she ran with like this whole other crowd. Like Greg once got her to bring him to lunch with Gloria Steinem when he was taking over Wonder Woman and wanted to talk to Gloria Steinem about Wonder Woman. <laughs> so she was like, her Rolodex was kind of insane. For years after I left DC at every, at Comic-Con, I'd end up like out to lunch with her and some executive for like some film production company she was trying to get going to like sell DC stuff to like movies and TV shows like the vertigo stuff where they still sort of controlled it. Um, but yeah, I always thought she was, she was, uh, for everything that you heard about her, she was like this bizarre combination of really, really sharp, had really, really great instincts about things, but also came across as a little bit kind of, um, I don't want to say flighty, but like, like she had a big life. Like you got, you always got the sense you were in the middle of, two different things that she was, you know, taking care of. So it was, it was a really interesting thing to have her attention for a while. Like she, I think she really liked a lot of the stuff I did for Vertigo and she really liked Gotham Central and she really liked Catwoman. Um, I've been lucky in that the people in charge of the companies when I worked there basically just said, let Ed do whatever the hell he wants, um, which is not, you know, there's a, there's a, probably five or 10 people in my generation who got that kind of privilege, like Bendis and Hickman and other people who just sort of get to have fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the, you know, writing with other people, it's like Matt, Matt and I co-writing Iron Fist was really fun actually. Um, Cause we would, uh, it, God, this was so long ago, but remember back when PlayStation two or three was like a big deal and, uh, like a lot of us would play Call of Duty at night, like like because we would work until late and then jump on Call of Duty at like 11. There was like this whole group of comic book people and um, we would just do these private rooms because if, if we went in a public room, the kids would just kill us. <laughs> <laughs> and did they do that like thing where they're fucking like dropping their balls on you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you you. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a thing where we would only count kills if you shot them, if you shot each other in the butt. And so every now and then if we were playing with regular people, we'd be, we'd shoot them in the butt and we'd be like, ah, in the butt. And be like, Hey man, what are you, what's going on here? <laughs> it was like, Oh, sorry. That's our, that's our little thing. Um, but Matt and I would, uh, like he was living in Kansas city at the time and I was in Seattle. And so we would spend mornings playing rockstar table tennis, which he kicked my ass at repeatedly, uh, and just plot out iron fist that way. And then we would break it down into who was writing what scenes, which was very similar to how Greg and I wrote for Gotham central when we teamed up, we would plot out 
the thing on the phone. It would take Craig and I about an hour or two on the phone to plot out an issue at Gotham Central. And then we would break it down who was writing what. And then we would race to see who got their half of the script done first, because whoever got their half done last had to do all the transitions and smooth out everything. And I always was last because I actually am obsessive about transitions. So I was like, fine. <laughs> I'll make sure that I'll make sure these page turns make sense. Do you um, do you attribute, oh, go ahead. Do you attribute your uh, interest in transitions to any particular books or writers or sources? Alan Moore in particular. Yeah, probably Alan Moore. Probably Alan Moore, but also like the Hernandez brothers and and um, I don't know Eisner probably to some degree. I mean, I was a huge comic nerd growing up. Like you know, like I, I'm assuming. You guys didn't have a lot of friends and <laughs> <laughs> like I definitely I look back on my life like 10 years ago. I was looking back at my youth and suddenly realized I'm like, oh, shit, I have like a severe anxiety disorder. <laughs> I never even realized it um, because most of my time I just tried to spend indoors like reading comics or drawing comics or, you know, trying to come up with ideas for my own comics and like the times of the year that I would look forward to would be like, I, I, I grew up partly in San Diego, so I would really look forward to Comic-Con and going and meeting other cartoonists and stuff. So I was like obsessive about comic storytelling from the time I was like 10 or 11 years old. I was like all those Eisner books about storytelling and, and I had that fucking uh, Windsor McKay anatomy book with all the incorrect anatomy. Um, but uh, I remember showing some sketches to someone like Paul Smith, I think I showed like a thing to when I was like 13 and he's like, you got to get rid of that Windsor McKay book, man. <laughs> People don't look like this. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I was just obsessed with all that stuff. So I, you know, I think a lot of it comes from, there is that definite era in Alan Moore, like right up until like after he's done with Watchmen when he stopped caring so much, but for a while where all of his page turns and transition moments from scene to scene, even on a page, he was always trying to do that kind of matching thing. Or like when he was doing Swamp Thing and he would like open a, open a story with an issue with some kind of, you know, repetitive monologue and then come back to it at the end, like bookends or stuff like that. I remember talking to Archie Goodwin about that actually. Uh, like the those first couple Alan Moore Swamp things was because I Al, he was asking me who my favorite uh, comic book writer was and I was like well like everybody else it's Alan Moore right now and and he's like what do you like about him I'm like I think he's the most original comic book writer that you know I've encountered in my lifetime and uh, and he said actually he's not <laughs> and he's like he's like originality is completely overrated what Alan Moore is doing is he's telling you know, he's like, there's only five stories in the world. And it's just about how you tell that story is, is what makes it, you know, your story and, and your style. And he's like, Alan Moore is bringing in, you know, more literary style to telling these same kind of stories that, you know, everybody else has been telling. He's like, the original thing about Alan Moore is how he brings you into and out of a story and, and the parts that he concentrates on. And I was like, oh, wow, that kind of blew my mind at like 15. Um, I'm glad you're talking about 15 because I, I do want to talk about a lot more of your current work, but I, I want to talk yeah. about that like late eighties, early nineties when you're in the indie scene. Um, yeah. who, who were your people then? Did you have like a peer group? Like, uh, I don't know. People in San Diego, 
In San Diego, I didn't really have a peer group. Um, you were I kicking it with Scott Shaw? Uh, Scott came into the comic store I worked at, actually. I heard someone tell some Scott Shaw. I, I don't want, I don't know if this is a hundred percent true story, but, but I know a comic dealer in LA who said, yeah, Scott Shaw said he used to buy weed from you. And I was like, I don't think so. Like I never was a weed dealer, but maybe I hooked Scott up with weed at a Comic-Con once. I don't, <laughs> like I have no memory of that, but, um, but uh, you know, also when comic dealers tell you things, they may not be true. But um, but yeah, a lot of these guys would come to our uh, like when I was in high school. I went to this high school in San Diego called Crawford, and Scott Shaw and Tom Pound, uh, or is it Tom Pound? John Pound, the guy who drew the 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 cartoon okay. bunny. Uh, no, jo Shit. John Pound was like the garbage pound kids Pound guy. Yeah, John Pound. Yeah, he he had gone to my high school. A bunch of these guys had all gone to my high school, and so some of them would come back and like lecture at the school. And like I remember Greg Bear coming and lecturing our creative writing class. Um, and I think Scott Shaw came to our our school one day, and he was like doing storyboards for animation at the time. Um, but yeah, I didn't really. I had a couple of friends who. I was clearly like the one who was way more into comics than them, but they were all very talented artists. A lot of them ended up becoming like uh, tattoo artists and stuff. Um, but there wasn't really uh, like an alternative comic scene there that I that I could grasp the way there was in like when I went up to the Bay Area, there were a lot more people that you would meet who were doing their own zines or self-publishing comics and um, that was where I started meeting, you know, more and more people. But I also met a lot of people, you know, going to Comic-Con all the time as a kid. Like I met the Hernandez brothers when I was like 14 or 15 and Dan Klaus. And, you know, at the time, I think I thought, oh, I'm making friends with all these guys. And I think in their mind, I was like this sort of weird tag along kid who they couldn't get rid of, who would show up drunk at their parties and make a fool of themselves. <laughs> But to me, I was like around my heroes. <laughs> and do you so, still do you still pay attention to uh, their works? Uh, oh, the, the works yeah, happening, yeah, yeah. the indie scene, and all that. Yeah, a lot of it. Um, you know, the the guys from my era don't do as much stuff anymore. I mean, Jaime and Gilbert still do. I think Jaime's actually doing the best work of his career the last probably two decades, which I'm surprised to say because he was so good from the beginning. Um, a lot more of the alternative stuff is all graphic novels now, you know, like even you guys, you know, put out mostly, I mean, Jim, you did that super mag. And I remember seeing that and I was like, Oh, this looks like, uh, something that would have been on the newsstand or in the music store in like 1992, like next to roller derby or something. <laughs> I, I was obsessed with that. I was like, man, he, he did this, magazine that was completely like as if it was just yet another thing it was like a an artifact of a bygone era i totally like that was that was one of my main inspirations for doing those criminal magazines was like i want to do something like that but in criminal those are um, cool i tracked those down after they were after the, the fact and that was a uh th those were sweet 
Yeah, the letters pages and all that. So I did so much research, like a lot of my responses in the letters page are just like a paraphrase from things Roy Thomas actually would write in third person. <laughs> Ask, asking girls to send in pictures of themselves in bikinis and stuff. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's a different era, man. Like one of the videos we didn't the 70s. put one of the videos we didn't put up yet, man, is uh is Red Sonia. And there's like a co-writer lady in there and I need to know the story behind that because this lady never wrote anything else ever. They're talking about Red Sonia conventions, and I'm like, what is Roy Thomas up to, man? Like, who is this lady? <laughs> like, so something's going on here. <laughs> Roy was a player, man. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's interesting doing research into uh, comics. Like, one of the things that I've been noticing lately is we look at, like, Golden Age stuff or magazines, you know, like 70s-era magazines and stuff. That stuff just gets erased from comics history. You know, even Charlton, it feels like this stuff doesn't have a voice anymore that's preserving it. And it's yeah. it's such a bummer if you're like a comics historian that I've I've started it. doing a thing in my newsletter, which I haven't done an update on it in like a year on this part of it, but I've started I was trying to do a thing just going back through my own memories of like significant comics of my life from the time when I was like because I think I saw comics for the first time when I was like two or three. I remember my dad bringing home this giant box of comics from uh, his, his, he'd asked all the guys at his office in Navy Intelligence when we were living in Gitmo, I think, um, if their kids had any comics they didn't want anymore. And so he brought this huge box of, you know, partly uncovers and, you know, like just in shit condition. I've never cared about the condition of comics. Um, and my brother and I just fought over this box of comics. And that was when I got obsessed with like Spider-Man. I think the first comic I ever read was like the early issue of the Fantastic Four where the Submariner and Dr. Doom team up and shoot the, the Baxter building into outer space. That's a good issue. <laughs> and then I, I read, just read that. Yeah, that's a great issue, actually. That's my favorite era of Kirby art, actually. I, 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 a lot of, I get a lot of flack for liking the late 50s to mid 60s Kirby more than the late 60s to mid 70s Kirby. That's Hernandez just, bro's favorite stuff. I just love the way he drew people. Yeah, I mean, no one drew people just walking around in clothes. Everything looked tweed and, you know, everybody looked like natural. Like he was an amazing naturalist, actually. And that whole period is forgotten. People talk about Alex Toth all the time and I love Toth, but um, I never empathized with a character in Toth, whereas I empathized with characters in, in Kirby all the time because his facial expressions were better, you know? And um, and you just felt like the characters moved in more different angles and just felt a little bit more alive, depending on who was inking him, I guess. Um, but yeah, like ever since that, like comics was my first, I think my first, almost one of my first memories is that box of comics. So. Like I was obsessed with comics my whole life. So I've been trying to sort of go through like what were the most significant ones to me? Cause I feel like my educational path is so different than modern comics people. Like when I talk to a lot of people now, other than like people who are students of like James and Jason's, you know, cartoon center for cartoon studies who have a wide range of influences from their library and stuff. But I feel like when I was growing up, it was hard to find old comics and you hunted for things. There was like this passion of like going to the library and trying to find like, oh, my God, here's a thing of Prince Valiance from, you know, 1935 or, you know, I, I it was like 
a big thing to like try to discover different kinds of comics and you know I, I i always feel like with the information age people don't appreciate as much like that whole thing of like the joy of the search and finding stuff and not having everything immediately at your fingertips makes you appreciate it a little bit more somehow but um i would you know obsessively like you go through these phases where it's like, oh, I'm super obsessed with Spider-Man. So I'm drawing like tons of Spider-Man like ripoff characters in my sketchbooks. And and um, I think when I was in like ninth grade or eighth grade, someone brought like a bunch of Robert Crumb comics to school. Cause there was this little, um, there was this little newsstand next to the San Diego Zoo. There was like this little path we walked from the zoo to Balboa Park. And these people used to set up little stands and sell stuff. And this guy was selling underground comics for a while. And he would just sell them to fucking anybody, apparently, because he sold them to like a seventh grader. And this guy had like Mr. Natural. And I remember looking through Mr. Natural and being like amazed by the art, but also like really freaked out by it. And like you get that weird feeling in your stomach, like, I don't think I'm supposed to be reading this. And you know, like when you sneak heavy metal into the house for the first time, because you're worried your parents will find it and, you know, send you to Catholic school or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I, uh, I remember when I first discovered those and realizing comics could be in black and white was like a huge deal. Because it's, of course, as a kid, when you're drawing comics too, the best thing is when you discover like somebody who's really great in comics, you don't feel like, is also the greatest artist in the world. Like that's why I think Frank Miller is so amazing. Like Frank Miller has a very limited art style and he just does so much with it that for me, like as a kid discovering his work, I was just like, oh my God, maybe someone who has as limited skills as me could still do this. <laughs> We talked about that before. Like there was this this issue, uh, like in the early '90s when when we were kids, on the strength of the Tales from the Crypt TV show, there was newsstand distribution for like oh yeah Cochran reprints, and they would gang it up in sixty four page chunks. So it would be two issues of stuff. It would be a horror book is the front cover, but then you get to the centerfold, and it would be like weird weird fantasy or like one of those like you know le lesser selling titles. And looking at Wally Wood's work on the exile in this one sci-fi story, like I always wanted to be in comics myself. I was always obsessed. But when I like saw that and thought like, oh, so you have to draw like this in order yeah. to get to draw comics, like it's hopeless. It's over. Like I was copying, yeah. you know, like, like Todd McFarlane and, sh and shit like that. But then you see that it's like, oh man, first off, this stuff is incredible. <laughs> I would love to do this. I can't do it. it, it it'll never happen. I have that toe there are the Wally Wood artist edition that's like the biggest one they ever made because it double up size and it's got like all the overlay layers and I'm just like like I'll keep that for the rest of my life because it's just amazing to think about of course no wonder he killed himself like how hard was that and he was probably getting like $35 a page yeah, he, 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 <laughs> he bled for those comics no no doubt man yeah, and he had a lot of assistance too, but you know, I mean, when you're having nine layers of Zipatone on one page and then it's gonna be colored too, like holy fucking shit. Yeah, those guys are the best. My favorite of all the ECs uh, is Johnny Craig, actually. I was like so thrilled when Fantagraphics started putting out the single collections of Craig, because I, he's like one of the few who also drew, wrote his own stuff most of the time. and. I just, you know, I still go back and read those stories and get a ton out of them. But his ink line is just fucking amazing, you know. Love that one, man. And and now that we have those like double up 
uh, artist editions. There's there's the one that collects like the uh, the one crime story where he's got the thumbprints right. all over it, and I'm like, oh, oh man, yeah, we, we can steal Johnny Craig's identity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his, his life size thumbprint. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I didn't think about that. Yeah, all these artists who use their thumbprints in their art. <laughs> Are you still a comics collector, Ed? Um. I'm not a collector of anything anymore, uh, primarily just because I got to this age where just having, I, like I was a hardcore, like I, I wasn't a single issue collector. I was more of like, once something got collected in a book, I would save it. I still have a huge book collection. This is uh, not my full collection behind me here. I have a bunch of stuff in storage and we have a rental house in LA that has like five times as many books in it. Um, so I guess I'm a collector, but I don't think of myself that way. Like there's very few books where I'm like, oh, I need to get a copy of that. You know, a lot of times if I read something, unless I feel like I'm like, I love it enough that I want to read it again or that I know I'm going to keep going back to it, uh, then, you know, I might put it in my give it to the library pile now, but I'm in my mid fifties now. Like I don't, I, when my dad died like 10 years ago, he had so many books, his whole, every every space on his wall in his house was a bookcase and like his wife went through hell trying to get i'm mean, first she tried to get me and my brother to take them all and we we're like no we already have that disease we don't, we don't need all of dad's weird first editions that he was constantly trading up for um but yeah it took her years to get rid of all that stuff and i just was like ah oh, i don't want to i, I want to have less stuff when i die than you know than i do now um, but I still follow, you know, a lot of stuff I, I read, you know, it's rare if like a great graphic novel comes out and I'm not like picking it up, you know, or have heard it or, or being anticipating it. I follow, you know, a lot of the younger cartoonists. It's, you know, it's easy if you now, because you, you know, the internet, you can keep up with like who's hot or who's doing really good work. I was as, as one of the the originators of the Ignatz Award. I remember like 10 years ago or so when every single person who won it was a woman cartoonist. I was like, holy fucking shit. I was like so proud to have been even the smallest part of that. <laughs> but I was just like, holy shit, like the the women in alternative comics have basically taken over. <laughs> How did that work out? Ed? Uh, you were part of SPX in the, in the early rounds or something? No. Um, Chris Orr was uh, one of the organizers of SPX, and I think he was working with Top Shelf at the time, or whatever Chris Starris's company was before Top Shelf, before he merged or bought Top Shelf or whatever happened there. Um, and I just met those guys at like some of the indie press conventions, and it was really it's hilarious because you know like. At the time, I was I was just thinking the Eisners and the Harveys really just end up feeling like they're dominated by mainstream comics, and I thought like alternative comics should have an award that was really just aimed at people who like wrote and drew their own books, really, like because like why is other than Chris Ware, it felt like you know nobody outside of Marvel and DC was ever winning any of these other awards. And um, so I just suggested to them as a way to help SPX become like more of a um, festival or something that they have like some kind of award and suggested calling it the Ignats and giving away like a brick actually. 
which amazingly, I, I was joking when I said it, but then he like the next day he's like, I got a guy who can make the bricks. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it's a brick with engraving on it. So I was like, oh, wow. And uh, um, I was on the jury the first year. That's why I was so mad when Frank Cho nominated himself for everything because I helped codify the uh, the rules for it. And the number one rule was like, you're not allowed to know who else is on the jury and you're not allowed to nominate your own work because like if someone else nominates you, like wonderful. But you know, if you're not, it just feels like so sleazy to nominate yourself for something or even vote for yourself almost. Um, though, you know, that one's up to, up to the individual, but I felt like that was super douchey, but yeah, I started that with him and then he made it a festival award. So you had to like be there to vote for it, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, though it limits the amount of people, probably as many people vote in that as vote in the Eisners or the Harveys anyway, really. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, it was interesting that that's gone on to be like a, a pretty cool indie comics award that I could never possibly win now. <laughs> New issue of low life, man. So you're saying it's never going to yeah. happen? <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, the funny thing was like, not long after that, I started winning Eisner awards. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, fuck it. <laughs> I don't have to figure out how to explain to security why I'm bringing a brick onto the plane. <laughs> what was Aeon Press? Oh my God. Uh, Aeon Press was, um, Ed Vick was the publisher of Moo Comics and he was, those were all like uh, funny animal comics and uh, Caliber Press where I had started publishing Low Life, I think. Yeah, because I'd done a book at Slave Labor and then I was going to do Low Life there and then they didn't want it. And so Mike Allred had gone from Slave Labor to, to um, Caliber and he asked me if I wanted to go over there and talk to them. And so I like had a phone call with the guy at Caliber and published Low Life there. And then I tried to get him to start like a whole other line of like, like indie comics um, where it was uh, this line called Monkey Ranch. Um, and, oh no, what, that was what I wanted to call it. What did they call it? It was like iconographics or something, which was like way too close to fanographics. Um, but it was like the first place, like Jason Lutz and Dame Darcy and like several other like really good, like indie comics people, like I like sort of discovered their mini comics and asked them if they wanted to be part of this line. Um, and then that all kind of blew up. So I needed a new publisher um, and Fanographics turned me down in a really, really kind of mean letter from Kim Thompson, classic Kim Thompson mean letter, nice to your face, total dick to your back. Um, uh, like, I can't remember who recommended it, but basically someone was like, oh, hey, Ed Vick is starting like a non-funny animal like line. You should go over there. And I, so I went over and talked to him and basically just agreed to publish it with him. And I did like two or three issues with him. And I don't know if anything else ever got published under, oh, I think there's some weird comic, like, something peach the desert peach about like it's like a world war ii comic yeah i think he published that and low life and that was about it maybe i, mean, I don't remember anything else coming a couple maybe a couple like one shot alternative comics came out 
Um, but yeah, it was just a real small publisher. Like he, uh, he had another job. He, he was like a manager at like half price books in Seattle, like around the corner from his house. And I would show up at his house and we'd shoot photo stats at the pages, like back in the old days. Um, but there was like multiple distributors back then. So those books actually sold pretty well. What a different landscape that was. We talked yeah. a lot about that whole nineties, you know, the, all the distributors going away, um, following oh SPX and stuff, you know, like, like following all that, like uh, self-publishing, there was a lot of momentum yeah. for that spirits of independence and stuff. And then, like, yeah. I don't know, 95, somewhere around there, Marvel goes yeah, that, to uh, heroes world and all the distributors just collapse. Yeah. That consolidation really sucked. The first time I tried to publish a comic in the mid eighties, there was like 25 distributors or something like that. Like even if you were doing shitty, you could still sell 10,000 copies, you know, like Blackthorn press was selling like 20 or 40,000 copies of everything they published just by knowing how to like reach the distributors. Cause there were so many. And, and I worked at bud plant distributing um, in San Diego for, they had like a San Diego branch for about a year before they, sort of went smaller or got bought out by diamond or whatever happened to them. Um, and like in the, you know, we had like a, a rental house that was our warehouse, but like distributors would stock stuff back then. So stores could come in and, you know, like we had like the little Lulu libraries and all the, all the like, you know, Carl uh, Barks, like hardbacks and all that stuff. Like these hugely expensive books, but like stores would come in and they'd be like, oh, great, you got it. And, you know, so it was like, but San Diego also had like 40 comic book stores at that point, probably. Still amazing to me that comic stores are a huge thing as much as they are. They're still like a huge part of the market. And, and that I think all of us have been predicting our entire lives that they were about to go away. <laughs> they just had their best two years ever in the midst of the worst time of humanity. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible when you hear like not just comics, but brick and mortar retailers in general, you know, facing terrible, terrible present. And it's like you said, the last two years, the reports from the comic shops are good. It's uh, it's astounding. Well, when you have this sense of suddenly I remember the terror of the day when like we were sending one of our graphic novels to print the day that diamond shut down and the printer shut down and every, and I was like, Holy fuck. Like this could, you know, we, we might have to do this on Kickstarter or something in six months. Who knows? Like I thought every comic store in, in the country, I thought we'd lose 80% of comic stores or something. And I, I don't think we lost very many at all. And, and more have opened up since then. And it's, it's, been really interesting because I think a lot of comic stores also make a shit ton of money on like mail order sales now. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I remember the last job that I had before going full-time in comics was at a used bookstore on Castro street and we made half of our money. And this is like 1993, 94, we made half of our money, uh, selling stuff on the internet in those days, even. Wow. Where it was like just like you like half of my day was spent uploading the details of books to some obscure text-based website <laughs> and now it's like you can find any book on the internet like i think so much of of all of these stores get support that way but also that fear as a fan of like because the older you get the more you just take it for granted you're just like oh i you know 
like I used to go to the comic store every Wednesday or every Friday or whenever new comics day was. And, you know, as I got older, it was like, Oh, once a month, I go to the comic store or, a couple, or every couple of months. And, you know, and, uh, you know, but the second that I thought comic stores were going to go away, I was like ordering shit from my comic stores. <laughs> I was like, Hey, I don't want, I don't want the things I love in life to actually disappear. And I think like bookstores and comic stores are, two of those things like i mean people still fucking went to the movie theaters during the pandemic to you know i assume out of some love of of going to the movie theater i think there was a lot of reactive stuff of like just looking for that line of safety blanket uh around that period of time where people were just <laughs> chasing uh chasing some sort of levity some sort of good feelings because a lot of things increase like trading card sales started to increase uh, every every like retro video game store like got depleted of resources because old heads were going back and like yeah. buying copies of Contra and shit like that <laughs> to, to just try to try to fill this time at home with uh, you know your, your it's, ad, uh, com comfort food for com your eyes and stuff. That's it, man. Yeah. That's totally. I mean, that's the series that Sean and I are doing now. Sprung out of that, like uh, I was re I was going back and reading a bunch of like you know, crime and pulp novels from the sixties and seventies. And I just was like, I don't want to write the thing. I, I was about to start writing something that I thought was going to be just too dark and depressing. And, you know, even for us. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, I'll just do like a pulp adventure thing. That'll be totally fun and easy. And it's, it's been, you know, all it's been really rewarding, but it, you know, of course I can't do like the, the fun, easy, like every, every other page is an explosion. I still have to make it like a, meditation on humanity and depression <laughs> and the end of the world and but it's more fun than what we were gonna do what, what was some of that stuff that you were uh reading in in that time like we're talking spillane we're talking black mass uh, prints or something like um well going back to like the parker books i was working with um it's finally coming out i think in may or june the the second martini edition of darwin's parker books but um, when Darwin passed away, uh, like I didn't know what to do. I you know, like I didn't go to any of the funerals or the or the like memorials. I just don't do well at stuff like that. And but I wanted to do something for him, and so I just volunteered for me and Sean to sort of be the point people on like recollecting all that Parker stuff, and we could you know help edit it and design the books and do press for it when it came out to try to sort of push Darwin's what I think is some of Darwin's best stuff, you know, make sure that that stuff survives. And uh, we actually uh, did a original story that's going to be in that second martini edition that Scott asked us to, to do something adapting one of the Richard Stark books. And um, I just couldn't find anything that made sense. I don't know how Darwin would find like a chapter of a book and turn it into a short story the way he did. But I just said, what if I just write like an original thing that's like a tribute to Darwin and Donald Westlake, who, you know, is one of my favorite writers of all time. And so I pitched like an idea and we had to run it by Abby Westlake and she wasn't super sold on it. So I had to like write the script on spec and then get permission for Sean to draw it. And she liked this. She liked the script. But once it was drawn, she like was really, really happy with it. And I was just, you know, blown away. I did it just to help Darwin. Um, but you know, I turned, I, I didn't realize I was like the first person that she'd ever given permission to, to write a Parker story. That's, you know, so I was just like, holy shit. And, you know, 
for, for me, it was just a chance to sort of pay tribute to, you know, my friend who's dead. But, um, but so because of that, I was like reading all the Parker books again and like all the, um, Growfield books. And I went back to reading like Lou Archer novels. And I also spent a lot of time online, like looking at like old pulp covers from the seventies. Cause the covers are usually the best parts of most of those books, as you know. <laughs> and I tried to read, I still have a bunch of them on the shelf back there that I'm going to try to get through the rest of. My dad's favorite series when I was a kid was the Travis McGee books, which I'd never read any of. Um, and so I tried to read a bunch of those and they don't hold up as well as I thought they would. Like Lou Archer holds up a lot better because the, like the Ross McDonald's Lou Archer books, like Archer is such a humanistic character. Whereas Travis McGee is just like, he's super pro environment. He's a, he's ahead of the curve on everything except feminism. Like every time a woman character comes onto the page, you're just like cringing the whole time as he's describing what her boobs look like and whether Travis wants to fuck her. And you're just like, she's trying to hire him to solve her husband's murder. And he's thinking about fucking her. <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, I was kind of partly in reaction to that, that I was like, I want to write like one of these kind of, you know, 70s pulp heroes and leave all the sexism and, and bullshit out you know, all the sexism and sort of uh, unintentional racism, I think a lot of it, it was just the times. But I wanted to try and write something that felt like it grew out of that, that world, sort of like our version of what like a paperback pulp hero would have been. Um, and that really was, you know, an escape from just like not wanting to think about the pandemic all the time and not wanting to think about global warming and you know, so of course I shove all that shit into the books anyway, because, you know, you write about whatever's deep in your head at that moment. But really for, you know, for us, it was like the comics market is completely shut down. We don't know what we were about to start a comic with single issues and stuff that we were going to collect. And, um, and I just, we were enjoying doing these graphic novels. And I thought, well, what if we do one that's twice as long? And then by the time we're done with it, we'll know whether there's a comic market or not. And if there's not, we'll try and, you know, we'll sell it on Kickstarter or we'll take it to a book publisher or something. Um, and, you know, a couple months into it, the comics market came back and Pulp finally got released and was like the biggest thing that we'd ever done. And, you know, I was blown away by that. So. At that point, we were just like, fuck, let's keep doing these reckless books then, because I think for the entire time Sean and I have been working together, like 20 years now, we've always talked about like uh, Torpedo and Sinner and um, even Black Sad, kind of just because those look so cool, like these European like detective characters who get to just existing graphic novels. And we wanted to do something like that, but we never thought that we'd have a big enough audience or the ability to actually just switch from doing single issues to just doing graphic novels. And, you know, like pulp kind of proved like, okay, we can, we can, maybe we can pull this off. And, you know, we had this dead time. So we just, you know, we basically got like one book done before we even really thought about like, is this going to be what we do from now on? And definitely it is because it's been a huge success. Um, but I just, I also think it stands out in the American market because so few, there are, there are so few people doing that kind of European model where you just follow the character from book to book. Do you use uh, your newsletter in a big way to 
to promote the works and things. I, I guess, do you have a big sort of readership that you push that out to on a regular basis? And has that proven effective? Um, it's hard to say. I think uh, one thing I've learned from the newsletter is I have no idea what uh, the thing people like the most about it is when I put up links to like weird crime stories that catch my eye or that people submit to me, like those get the most clicks of anything. Like when Marcos and I put out the first issue of Friday uh, on panel syndicate, what I discovered is like, I can have like eight or 10,000 newsletter readers, but very few of them actually want to read a digital comic, <laughs> like even for free. It was like only like a thousand people clicked on the first one at all. And I was like, holy shit, this is interesting. But um, I use it kind of because I hate I hate social media. Like I don't want to like at some point during 2016 with the pre pre-election stuff, I just was like so sick of all social media. So I, I never had Facebook. I wasted too much time on MySpace and then everyone was switching to Facebook and I was like, I don't even like any of this stuff. Fuck it. I'm, I don't want to hear from people I went to high school with. Um, and uh, so I was on Twitter for a long time and I just, I had this moment where I think I, for a couple of years wanted to quit, but I totally just thought about how many hours I'd wasted reading random people's opinions or arguments or, you know, getting upset about something that doesn't affect me at all, or, you know, that I wouldn't have even known about if I hadn't looked at Twitter at that exact moment. And it just felt like this huge time suck that was just designed to just piss people off. And I just thought, I wish I could get every minute of that back and read a book with it instead, <laughs> or read like a million books with it. Um, and so I started the newsletter right before I bailed on Twitter so that I could drag over as many of the people who were actually paying attention to anything I ever said on social media. But um, I feel like, you know, like I had a close to 100,000 Twitter followers, but I never had more than a couple thousand people ever read a tweet. Usually it would be like a couple hundred people or a couple dozen people. Whereas the newsletter, like... I think it's like 8,000 people read it whenever I send it out. And I don't, I'm not like one of those guys who does it every week on a schedule or anything like that. I do it, you know, usually when there's something cool I want to show people or I've, or I've written something about process that I want to talk about. Um, I enjoy that part of it a lot. That's where I've been putting up the, like my comic memories, history stuff is in my newsletter. Um, I want to interview people in it, like just do like five questions kind of things with people. But newsletters are fucking exhausting. They take all day to put together. If you if you start putting it together ahead of time, you'll find you can you can spend three or four days putting together something and you're just like, holy shit, I spent so long on this that, you know, how many people are going to see it in their in their inbox and just be like, oh, another newsletter because like, everyone has one now. <laughs> But yeah, I use it a lot to like preview stuff for our, our readership and, and, you know, let people know when like final order cutoff is or what stores might have like signed book plates. Cause we do a bunch of, we probably, at this point, we're probably signing book plates for like 20% of the print run that we put out uh, of these reckless books. Cause more and more stores just want the signed book plates they can stick inside. Um, which is great. 
uh, but it takes forever to sign them. <laughs> Kayfabe is brought to you by the comic books that we make. Jim Rugg and Ed Piscor are lifelong cartoonists with a heck of a bibliography, and March is Cartoonist Kayfabe Month at the comic shops. Jim Rugg is going to be presenting you, Hulk Grand Design Monster, at the end of March, and Ed Piscor is going to be bringing you uh, Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one, um, on March 9th. High Octane incredible hulk comics distilling down the history of the incredible hulk into two solid 40 page comics coming month after month uh this will be coming out in april Incre incredible hulk grand design madness these are the variant covers to go along with hulk grand design uh the first run the ed piscor the marcos martin the peach momoko got this uh jeff darrow cover that's going to come with the second issue and jim you've yet to to print me up uh, the ed mcginnis variant cover that's coming up with that next one coming soon <laughs> red room trigger warnings murder on the dark web for fun and profit uh first issue coming out like i said march 9th and these are the additional covers uh to go along with that the jim rug by way of robert crumb peach momoko and the eddie p variant going to be coming out on a monthly basis completely self-contained and uh rising tide raises all ships and we have other books in print at the moment the breast of jim's bibliography that you could get on amazon or at a good comic shop today plain jane's Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, collecting all of his uh, image comics uh, versions of Street Angel. We have new printings of Hip Hop Family Tree that are out in the wild, the box sets and individual issues, so they are no longer $200 on eBay and Amazon any anymore. WYSIWYG, still in print, Portrait of a Serial Hacker, get your hands on that. And the grand design that started them all, X-Men Grand Design, three volumes of that that you can get easily at uh, any good comic shop or on Amazon. And there is also an omnibus that is out of print, uh, but you might be able to find it in the wild here and there. I was out at the flea market recently, saw a copy. Now that we're done paying the bills, let's get back to the video. Your books have a really distinct look. Like, I think they look really great, you know, uh, on the shelf, oh, uh, the cover design. They look amazing, typography. I, I, I was going to say, I, I, I mean, I buy all your... I love that you've switched to graphic albums for all the Street Angel stuff. And, like, I, I always... I, you know i look at that stuff a lot like design of of all those books sean does all ours but but uh, I'll, I'll send him examples of stuff that i like a lot that's cool that's what i was going to ask if you guys you know work with a third party or or how you figure that out because um obviously you you have a visual background um yeah yeah i do but covers was always my worst i'm i'm like a storyteller like i kept a notebook instead of a sketchbook as a kid like I would write the stories that I, I always think in panels and pages. So covers are always the hardest part for me. At some point, I was talking to a guy who's like an editor at one of the Amazon publishing lines, actually. This is like 10 years ago or so. And he said, every cover should be designed at, like to be viewed at two inches tall. Um, because he said also the cover is the most important piece of advertising for your book, whether you realize it or not. It's like you have about one second to two seconds to grab someone's attention with your cover. Um, so, I mean, that's the joy of only doing graphic novels now is we can spend more time on the design of the covers than we could on every single month during, you know, monthly comics. Um, but yeah, we will, Sean and I will go back and forth on some of our graphic novel covers a lot a lot of times it'll be like he'll send a sketch and i'll be like oh that's perfect like with pulp it was i gave him a couple of ideas for a way to i was like maybe on one side he's like we see him on the horse and on the other side he's like 
you know, the old man or whatever. And he drew it both as the Western. Um, but I, the second I saw it, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Um, whereas my heroes have always been junkies. We went through, God, we must have spent a week arguing about the design of that cover because Sean really didn't just want to do the close up of her with the cigarette, with the text partly covering her. And I was like, I just kept insisting. I was like, no, I really think I'm right about this. And eventually like our wives got in on it and we, we were each getting our wives opinion and his wife and my wife both agreed with my vision on it. And I was like, victory. <laughs> um, but we'll go back and forth on like bad weekend. The one we did about the old cartoonist going to Comic-Con. Like we went through, I think in the, in the last criminal collection, there's like, all the different colored schemes that we went through before we decided on the pink one. And which was hilarious because the pink one was like the second one Sean sent over. <laughs> and then we spent days. So we really think about that stuff a lot. And Sean's super particular. We actually force uh, in our foreign publishing contracts, we force them to follow our designs and covers a lot of the time. Like we'll have it put in our contract that we have cover approval of everything. And sometimes they'll just do a new logo and you're like, yeah, no, just put our fucking logo there. That's what we want it to look like. Um, so yeah, we're super, the great thing about me and Sean as a team is Sean's super fast. Like he's one of the fat, he, you know, he's one of the fastest artists I've ever worked with but he, he's also got a degree in design and looks at that stuff a lot. Um, he'll go look at like comps, like, you know, magazine covers and logos and all sorts of stuff to try to like spark ideas for what he wants our next books to look like. Um, I look at a lot of old paperback covers from like the fifties and sixties all the time, trying to find like really unique designs that we can steal. <laughs> um i mean do an homage to right <laughs> but um but yeah we're we're like as obsessive with the packaging as we are with the comics which you know that's the great thing about independent comics right now for us is like especially image like like we choose the paper we choose where it's being printed we you know we do everything from and we send them a print ready book basically and, you know, and make sure I know exactly how everything's going to be. It's been a long time since I've had something show up where I'm like, what the fuck? This isn't the right paper, you know, or who, who wanted this on shiny stock? Matt finish. <laughs> like, so, yeah, we spend a lot of time on that. And, you know, Jim, again, I think this is one of the things we share, like all of us, I think, have like a an obsessive design sense to everything we put out. But. But I, your guys' work both really leaps out at me off the shelves as having, it's that weird mix of both nostalgia and the new at the same time. You know, it's, I always find that very exciting. And it's, it's such a comic book thing, you know. It, it's neat as we've been talking to more, uh, you know, people like you, uh, Brian K. Vaughn comes to mind. These, these guys who I think of as high profile comic creators, but you're doing this work at like an image where you're doing what I think of as a great strength of comics is it's one or two people's vision, yeah. you know, compared to film or other media or, or any other yeah. projects. And to extend that to production and design, um, it's really remarkable. And and I don't know that I've heard that conversation a lot, but it's, yeah. it's almost extending what makes comics great now into like the book design publication of those comics. And so much, so much of the market too is about those deluxe hardbacks. Like people really, like we have a whole part of our audience 
that isn't buying anything we're doing right now because they're waiting for the deluxe hardback that's like an inch taller. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's what my my all those uh, we reprinted the first three uh, the first two criminal deluxe editions last year uh, right after we put out the third one. And I could not believe, I didn't know how much the original ones were selling for because they'd been out of print for like eight or 10 years. Um, but yeah, when, when I saw like the, you know, I was worried we were printing too many and we are, I think we basically sold out of them in like a month. And I was like, holy shit, we didn't print nearly enough. Um, but yeah, we're, it's like, I love the idea of creating like a art book and a, like the artifact itself is so important to me. And I'm always having to explain to foreign publishers when they're when they want to get the rights to publish our stuff, but also do the deluxe versions. I'm like, you're not allowed to publish the deluxe version digitally. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, because you can't have an oversized art book in a digital. It's like, what are you only going to have it on the large iPad? You know, <laughs> like, like it's just like we're no, it's an art object. Like you can only print it physically. You can't sell like you can sell the comic book size ones digitally. I don't care. You know, like I hate digital comics, really. I, I read, you know, I read the odd like online ones, but I don't have a comicsology. I guess they ended that anyway, but I like I don't have memberships to any of that stuff. And I read PDFs from from friends when they send me things on advance and I feel like I spend enough time looking at a screen. I want to sit down with like pieces of paper and, you know, stuff that helped destroy the environment in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, do you work with an editor in, in or, or uh, who do you, who do you show like whenever you're working on a new project or a new script, do you have somebody that you pass that by? Um, not not in such a way where I want like someone to tell me whether or not to do something. Um, we uh, have a couple times listed someone as an editor where, where it's more like they're sort of doing the editing the way Marvel and DC editors do, where it's more like traffic management. Like when I was on Westworld, the like hours were just so insane that I couldn't keep track of everything that needed to happen to make sure our books got to print on time. I could just, I was getting up at like five in the morning or four in the morning and writing a couple pages of comics and then going to an office for like nine or 12 hours a day. So I brought on somebody uh, to handle that stuff, but I never, I never really, uh, I feel like because Sean is so fast when I'm writing my scripts, I write every scene to the point where like I've rewritten it by the time I'm sending him a chapter of like one of our books, I've probably written five drafts of it, like just because I sit, when I sit down in the morning, I'll go back to the whatever the first page of that chapter is and start from there. So I'm kind of tightening as I go and rewriting as I go. Um, and, you know, even with Marvel and DC, I almost never had an editor be like, oh, you should change this or that and this will be way better. Like, I just feel like, you know, coming from indie comics and stuff, and especially working in TV and film, you get so many different people telling you why why a scene isn't working or you need to change it to this or that. And really you're just making things different. So I like that, you know, it's just me and it's Sean. I have, if I'm in the early formative stages of an idea and I'm not sure about it, like I have like a group of friends that we have like a Slack thing that we're on, like posting our work to, share with each other and stuff as we're creating it and you know i'll talk about like 
I have this weird idea for a book and um, like one of the, one of my favorite things that Sean and I ever did actually came from me bouncing a crazy idea off of this small group of, you know, other writers and artists. Um, the, one of our criminal stories, the last of the innocent, that's sort of like a like what happens when Archie grows up a story. Um, that was a thing I thought, I was like, am I crazy or is this a good idea? And will anyone besides me be interested in it? And they were all like, you know, those are the ideas that are always the most cool is the ones you think no one's going to give a shit about. Um, and so a lot of what I've done in the last five or 10 years has been influenced by, you know, bouncing these ideas around. I think all of us do it with each other and sort of show our work in stages like Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky and, you know, a few other, I probably shouldn't be naming people. <laughs> we don't talk shit about anybody ever, I swear. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just like friends that I've had for, for years and we just, you know, we sort of are in constant communication on and off throughout the day. And if you get like a great cover or a sketch or something that you want to show, you should post it up there. And, you know, so a lot of it is that I don't, I wouldn't consider that like an editor really. The um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't know. It's a weird one because I, I do feel like editors do serve a purpose, like a good editor. And when in film and TV, I definitely want to get feedback from, like, if I if I'm writing an outline for a movie before I actually start writing the script, I want to show it to like three or four different screenwriter friends and get their feedback on like, does this flowing right? Does this feel like a movie? Does you know? But it's like people who. I respect and who I know are already good at what they're doing as opposed to just some random executive where I'm like, your job is to say no to things. You know, your job is to be afraid of getting fired if you say yes to the wrong thing. So like, what have you ever written? It's like Martin McDonough, like uh, when he wrote in Bruges, his agent, he sent it to his agent and his agent said, what do you want me to do with it? And he's like, send it around. You know, I want to direct it, you know, and, and, uh, and he's like, and he's like, well, do you have any demands? He's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I would like no notes. <laughs> and, and he's like, so whoever, whoever, you know, is willing to put up the money and not give me notes on the script can have it. <laughs> and, and someone was, I think he was being interviewed by like Elvis Mitchell. And he was like, so you don't like studio notes. And he's like, I mean, my feeling with notes is what the fuck have you ever written? <laughs> Which is funny because like I do, like I would love to have Martin McDonough read one of my things and be like, you know, you should change this or this or this, or have you thought about this? Even if I'm going to disagree, it's like, it's nice to get someone else's feedback sometimes. Or if I'm stuck on a story, especially crime stories, a lot of my, a lot of my non-comics friends are, are like professional crime writers or journalists and stuff. So I'll call up one of them and I'll be like, hey, can I, can I talk you through this this point in this book where I'm at, where I'm not hundred percent sure whether to go left or right. And then I'll stand in my front yard on my phone and talk to like Sarah Grand for an hour or Dwayne Swierzynski or Greg Rucka or one of these people. And just sort of, you know, usually it ends up being that the thing I wanted to do is the thing I should have just done, but I was second guessing myself because I was 80% through a graphic novel. And you have that, that moment where you wake up in fear of like, holy shit, what if I went off track 40 pages ago and it's all drawn? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> so common. We we were just going through the uh, the Eisner uh, Miller book uh, a little bit 
And oh, yeah. uh, both of the, actually it was uh, Frank Miller when he was working on that Family Values uh, graphic novel, Sin City, uh, where it was really like the first <laughs> the first time he uh, he really didn't have a, the tether of, of an editor looking over his shoulders while he's working on it. And he's talking about like at a certain point, he doesn't even know if it's comprehensible or not. And Eisner sort of concurred that there's just like, like this moment during the process where it's like you who knows man like yeah, you're you, so far in the forest that <laughs> i find that with film especially because it's such a like with the comics i even the graphic novels sean and i are doing like i will send him you know 10 or 15 pages at a time and as i'm writing the next pages i'm seeing pages come in so it's like almost this moment of like anxiety but also relief of like okay this worked and also it's fucking committed to paper. I can change the text, but he's not going to redraw all these pages. Like that's fucking insane. So it is that moment though of like, so far every single book I've had like this moment of anxiety of like, oh God, did I leave myself enough room to finish the book? You know, am I going to have to call up Sean and go, hey, can you draw 15 more pages before our deadline? <laughs> and I found out with heart with the first, uh, with uh my heroes have always been junkies was our first time doing an original hardback and we put out hardbacks before and but they were reprints of stuff and i hadn't really thought about the schedule it takes the distributor and the printer a month longer to do a, a hardback book than it does to turn around a paperback or a single issue comic and so suddenly that was why jake uh, sean's son became our full-time colorist was sean was actually gonna color uh, uh junkies himself and Jake was gonna like assist him because Jake was just like fresh out of art school. And uh, Sean colored the first two pages to sort of show Jake what he wanted. And then suddenly we found out that our deadline was like six weeks earlier than it was. And so I was like, hey, Jake, you're coloring the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't think we had very many notes for him even like it was, at, which I thought was like one of the most, definitely the boldest debut of a colorist in comics ever like he doesn't color within the lines he's doing experimental shit on every page um and now jake of course draws a bunch of his own comics that he does all the art and lettering and coloring and he's like his dad plus colors <laughs> barely touched the surface <laughs> yeah there, there there's a lot and we're not going to get to all of it um you know we were talking about kind of uh the personal part of comics and how that's a strength and i think that you get into it even in distribution with things like the panel syndicate uh friday series yeah um, i don't know how much you think about that but but it's i i love that that's available to us as creators now you know like we might not have yeah. 25 distributors as they had in the 80s but we do have these other avenues and it's cool to see you exploring that yeah yeah it was interesting have you guys talked to the substack guys at all no oh you should you should talk to them it's interesting what they're doing and they're throwing a shit ton of money around which is the the even more interesting part what was their phone um, number <laughs> <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get you next email um but uh yeah i mean i think you guys would do amazing on something like that um i know he's been talking to jaime uh, uh trying to get jaime and some, i'm probably not allowed to say any of this but no one's gonna see this <laughs> um but uh they're you know they want to have lots of well i think adrian's doing something for them actually tomina um but yeah they're all these different avenues kickstarter to me was like a big breakthrough when i saw like mike kaluta and them like doing a, a, a revamped or a remastered version of Starstruck. 
on Kickstarter and I was like, oh, I'm going to invest. And that was like my first Kickstarter thing I ever jumped into, I think. And uh, now, of course, they're like doing all this NFT blockchain bullshit, which I don't understand or care about or I just know the right people seem to be upset about it. So fuck them, I guess. <laughs> but um, that was to me was kind of mind blowing to see some of these like especially like the older guys like starlin and these guys who were able to keep doing their comics by just selling to their core audience and making more money than if they'd have done it through marvel or dc or you know like that that kind of avenue is really interesting to me and like panel syndicate marcos just thinks digital comics should be whatever people want to spend and you know i think on the average he makes a little bit more than he would have made if he'd been paid a page rate and published it through like a major publisher and you know but the, at the same time if like a friday tv show happens you know all the money goes directly to you know uh, anybody who wants to read it all digitally has to get it at panel syndicate and you know it's interesting to me is that like it's about half people who pay and half people who don't pay but the people who pay pay like overpay like almost all of them some of them pay will pay like 20 dollars and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought I thought that was a really interesting platform. Um, it's weird, the comicsology thing, like blending with Amazon now, and now it's just Kindle only because every now and then when I'm trying to read something that I can't find a copy of, I'll buy like the Kindle version of it just to read it. And it's such a counterintuitive way to read comics. <laughs> this, the double page spreads are like a fucking postage stamp for some reason. <laughs> So I, it's interesting that digital comics has been like 15 years now and so few people have actually, uh, like we're still drawing comics and making comics for print really, you know, like almost everything about comics that we love is still for the print version. Like I, I know some producers who love to read comics on their phone and panel view. And I'm like, I don't know anybody who would want to just look at a comic panel by panel <laughs> like, you know, like i'd like to think of the page like i'm a comic book snob i guess <laughs> it, it, it's interesting you say that because like as we look at like old interviews sometimes it'll come up with creators that it wasn't common to think page layout it was like almost panel to panel in, in some instances you oh, know, like, i think that becomes more of a topic of conversation at some point maybe in the 70s or so but the flip side is something like webtoons where it's like there is no page it was always created yeah, at just, least with the scroll or the phone screen in mind you know which is about yeah, that that size. trips me out yeah and it's, it's there's some huge selling uh fantasy one that just came out it's like some porn uh, some like softcore porny fantasy thing and uh but yeah like they had to figure out how to break it into pages to print it yeah. to sell like half a million copies right. or something of <laughs> a comic I've never heard of before. <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, that, that scroll of it. I remember when Scott McCloud first did something like that to sort of show the potential of comics for the web. And I was like, well, this is kind of a mind fuck. Like, it's amazing to me that Chris Ware hasn't gotten obsessed with it, but I guess the old fashioned old man inside of him is like, yeah, I still use the same ink jar for my pens. That's right. That's <laughs> you know? he, did a, he did a couple weird things. Like mm -hmm. there was some like pressure sensitive like iPad thing. Yeah, he's definitely done. Oh, that's for interesting. You. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be one of those guys who, you know, you could see doing like a choose your own adventure kind of thing almost. But um 
because how how weird would it be to be able to just like click on a Chris Ware panel and have a whole other page open up that has the flashback story that the guy's thinking of? it's like that kind of stuff about the digital stuff I think is kind of amazing but I'm such a print person I'm I mean, I'm Generation X I'm not, I'm not gonna no, I'm going to die on the print right. mill with the rest of the world. <laughs> well, I mean, it's noteworthy, too. I think print, has it looks better now. What you can do in print now is better than it's ever been as well. You know, you talk about oh stacking your own paper. I mean, think about the colors that we get. You know, like, it's it's fun. you can do better print now, I think, than basically any other time. So, Did you ever work in, like, print in the 90s, like, where you had to have ruby lith overlays and stuff and... Like the first comics I did through DC, we got the the color proofs were like watercolored Xeroxes with all the lines telling you like what color, what gradient everything was supposed to. And I was like, holy shit, like that whole side of it is gone. Now we're looking at colors almost exactly like what they're going to be on the page. Like some things will darken up more than others and some things won't print as dark as you want them to. But for the most part, like you know, like I spend a, like Sean sends me pages, you know, every week I get a batch of pages from Sean. And when our books are getting ready for print, I spend like a month and a half getting batches of pages from Jake and color. And it pretty much looks like what the book is. And, you know, any yeah, the paper quality now is insane. The price has fucking gone up, of course, because um, of pandemic shit, uh, you know, but yeah, I, it's like, that's the other thing about comics people like like especially i guess guys like us where we actually care about like what the back what the you know can you can you make the background of the paper look like it's faded newsprint and, you know like like i love getting obsessive about all that stuff and when i sometimes a book will come out from fantagraphics and i'll i'll like email eric reynolds to find out what the paper is <laughs> and I'm like what, what kind of paper is this <laughs> Where did you print it? What was your unit cost? Like, like I think about all that stuff all the time because I'm just like, I just care about the objects themselves so much as much as, you know, like. If you're like going to like, cut the tree down and make the object, that's what I want. I want the person yeah. to care about it. Like make it mean something, make it, you know, the best book that you can make. You know, it's, it's the yeah. ones that look like no thought went into it. That's the crime against nature. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, and it is like, it's funny because we grew up when comics were thought of as a disposable medium. And now I'm like, I, I want everything I do to be like the opposite of disposable. Like I get mad when I see one of my books in a used bookstore. I used to be like happy about it. And then I was like, man, someone didn't want to keep this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a personal but, affront. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's always, it's like when you, when I was on social media, you only care about the complainers. <laughs> you never, you never care about all the people who are like keeping praise on whatever you did. You're right. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You missed all the bad parts. Ne negativity <laughs> bias. Yeah, exactly. Ed, do you, do you think about writing prose? Um, I have, I, I mean, I started out, uh, when I was in Seattle doing like the low life comics, I was working at the stranger doing like movie reviews and the occasional like uh, longer piece, just sort of, I don't know how to even describe it. Just kind of like, here's what, here's what this experience was like, like reviewing life. Um, but uh, I've tried a couple times to write like crime novels and I've never been able to give myself enough of a window to actually do it between 
the comics deadlines like like with the the great thing about me and sean is that like i think the reason we're so prolific is because sean always wants pages to draw like he feels something's wrong in life if he's going a week without drawing and so he's i like this constant need to make decisions when i'm stuck on a story and keep him fed with pages has really been you know, a huge part of the last like couple decades of my life. And so I feel like to write a novel, you pretty much have to only be doing that. Like every morning you get up and you spend like four hours writing your novel and then whatever else you're gonna do with your day. And I think I put that kind of effort into the books that I'm doing with Sean basically. And, you know, now with Marcos um, and, you know, like I, I don't, I just don't know. Like sometimes I think, oh, I've got to, I've got to at least write one like crime novel before I die. Um, and uh, but then I, but then I start thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I could turn it into a graphic novel. And <laughs> so I think that that uh, it's like it's an interesting thing. We didn't get to it, but it's like at some point I switched from writing and drawing my own comics to I was writing and drawing my own comics, but also writing things for other people at the same time. And then once I started working with like Michael and Sean, I pretty much phased out of drawing my own comics. And, and I think part of it was like the creative satisfaction of seeing like Michael Lark and Sean Phillips and Darwin Cook, like turn in stuff that I'd written. And it was so, it looked so much better than anything I could have possibly drawn. Like I always had ideas for um, like, I guess graphic novels was what we were calling them at the time. And now, now everybody calls them that. Um, like I remember in the nineties, I was part of this group in Seattle that was like uh, Jason Lutz, Tom Hart, John Lewis, Megan Kelso, James Sturm. And we had like a, every Tuesday we would get together and show each other like what we were working on and give each other feedback and stuff. Um, and I got a lot out of that, but I always felt like those guys were so much better at what they were doing than I was like artistically. And um, at some point, like I remember I was trying to work on an idea for a crime thing and I just realized like, it's gonna look like an Archie comic, but with crime in it, like it's not gonna, it's not gonna be what I want it to be because I don't, I can't draw like David Mazzucchelli or, or Alex Toth. Like I just don't have that ability um, and so working with other artists like suddenly started to satisfy that creative urge and like open up these other you know doors in my brain of like oh i could write a story about this or i could write that and you know i would say for sure the last 10 15 years everything i've written that sean has drawn has been you know as personally important to me as like the stuff that i used to write and draw for myself Whereas, you know, like when you're writing Batman and stuff like that, you don't, you don't put as much of yourself into it. In some ways you're trying to like, uh, you know, write for the character as opposed to shoving your own feelings into it. But when I write Criminal, it's like all those characters are like me and my friends. And a lot of those things are, are at least loosely based on things that really happened. And, you know, the reckless books are all just me sort of trying to relive moments of the 80s and try to remember when when the world felt like it was going to end but it didn't you know um so i find like a lot of creative satisfaction in in doing these 
books with other artists who, you know, every now and then I think, oh, it's, I, I never imagined I'd be one of those guys who quit doing comics. But I had a lot of friends who'd be like, I'm giving up comics. I can't do it anymore. And I always was just like, how could you give up comics? It's like, it's like, a, it's like saying you're giving up having a disease or something <laughs> like, but you don't get to choose that. Comics is like, if you, if you're a comics <laughs> person, like you just sort of at some point in your life, you found that you were reading comics all the time and you were drawing comics and you never thought about it. Like everybody I know who's a comics person and has the same origin story. If the odd people who are like, you know, I was in college and I read Watchmen and I'm like, that's, that's super weird to me. Like to me, <laughs> it's like, no, you weren't, you weren't tracing fucking peanuts in the newspaper strip when you were poor. <laughs> like that's, that to me feels like the origin of most of my generation of comics people. You do find those odd ones that uh, can like punch the clock, like uh, get up for work, you know, draw a page or whatever, clock out for the day at 4 p.m. and then just become a regular citizen. But I don't know those people. I just know that they're out there, you know, like going to conventions, like, you talk to a couple of those guys here and there. Yeah, apparently Seth like keeps a regular schedule, which for how I guess he's really productive on stuff that we don't see, like building a tiny city in his basement or <laughs> something. <laughs> but I remember watching part of that documentary about him and he was like, I like routine. And I'm like, it's, that is kind of a cool thing about comics. I remember talking, Seth was one of the people who, when I was young, uh, that I knew a little bit through like Chester and Joe Matt. Um, and, uh, that he said something to me that just was, was like mind blowing where he was showing, uh, Doug Wright art and he talked about how Doug Wright had worked for this magazine for like 30 years and he was like could you imagine like the joy of sitting down and just being able to do this every week for 30 years in like this huge magazine like and I thought about it I think about that all the time now when I look back whenever I'm frustrated about some part of publishing or one of our books didn't get covered somewhere that I was told it was going to or whatever I'm like I've spent the last 20 years like with Sean pretty much, especially the last 15, just doing whatever the fuck we wanted and been like really successful at it. And, but because I'm a comics person, I can only see like the downside. Sometimes I have to stop and remind myself like how fucking lucky I am. And, you know, like all of us, like you meet people at conventions all the time who are like, you know, like telling you how much your stuff inspires them or wanting advice or like every, so many people in line at that convention, like want to be on the other side of the table. You know, I did when I was growing up, I would like seek out these guys who I loved like Jaime and Gilbert and tag along with them and try to get art tips. And, you know, like it's, it's just such a, um, an interesting field, but yeah, it's because it's comics, we always feel like, you know, even though comics is the biggest thing in pop culture right now, like Marvel and DC and all that shit, like own pop culture, like comics still has this sort of uh, like, like a downtrodden stepchild kind of thing to it. Like we always feel like we're a little bit overlooked. And, uh, you know, you do feel that too when you're like the comics people invited to the movie premiere and you're like, oh, we're in the overflow theater. Okay. <laughs> you, even, even the people who are making billions of dollars on the stuff we do don't really appreciate the comics people. So comics always feel unappreciated, but it's like, it's kind of amazing. Like I got to do a book about an old unappreciated cartoonist. Like I would have never imagined that 20 years ago when I was trying to like 
pitch ideas to people. It's like, now I don't have to pitch ideas to people. I just do whatever the fuck I want. And, you know, if I want to write a really boring thing about an old man going to Comic-Con, like, I can do that. <laughs> we do have that opportunity. And that's and it's sort of up to us as creators to, like, you know, if, if Japan has this expanded kind of landscape of, of comics readers, well, who's going to be the one to make the great baseball comic? Who's going to be the one to yeah. make uh, something about people who hang out in... I was going to say arcades, but I don't think that exists yeah. anymore. But you get the yeah. picture, man. I look at the market as it exists today, especially for alternative comics. And this is like in the 80s and early 90s, this is exactly what we wished it would be. Like huge graphic novel. Like I have no idea how much Tilly Walden or Emily Carroll sell, but I'm assuming it's a fuck ton because their books are great and you hear about them all the time. And I'm like, you know, like we couldn't have dreamed of that. It was such a big deal whenever someone got like a book released from Pantheon or something that was a collection of their weekly newspaper strip or something. I was like, oh my God, you're from a real book publisher. Now it's like, not only is that a thing, but like all the major comic publishers have book distribution deals and like, like Walking Dead is the most successful thing in the history of comic books for the creators. <laughs> like like it's not only one of the most successful things in the history of comics ever just based on how much it sold even before the tv show but like the creators got all of it <laughs> you know depending on the lawsuits <laughs> a little bit for the lawyers <laughs> yeah exactly but it's like it's crazy to me that even you know even stuff from image you know, is selling hundreds of thousands, like Saga must sell hundreds of thousands through the bookstore market. And then, you know, probably like 50, 100,000 through the comics market. And like, that's insane. Like me and Sean now sell like half our books to the book market and half to comic stores now that we're doing graphic novels. And, you know, before we were graphic novel only, we were probably like 30% bookstores and 70% and comic stores. You guys are definitely very well represented at the Barnes and Nobles uh, here, here, in, yes. here in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I used to, I, the, the thing that's been interesting, you see it throughout the entertainment industry. Like when I first started coming to LA to be, you know, to take meetings about like, oh, we want to take one of your books and turn it into a movie or hire me for a screenwriting job or whatever, like, most of the people that you'd be meeting with didn't know anything about comics or who you were. It was their assistant who was like their job. Like you'd go in and there's an assistant with like a stack of comics this high on their <laughs> desk. And all those assistants now are like running the studios <laughs> and they, the nerds like slowly took over. And, you know, it's like, I always say the, the best friend you can make in in the direct market especially is like get the guys who work at the counter like in your book when i was working at comic relief in berkeley like when i first started there eight ball came out and i think they'd only sold like 30 or 40 copies of the first issue and when issue two came out i i like convinced them to order like hundreds of copies and i was like at the front counter on new comics day and I just made everyone buy it. And I was like, look, if you don't, if you don't like it, money back guarantee. And no one brought it back. And it was like, if you get those, the comic book bartenders to be your fans of what you do, you know, then you can survive in this market. I mean, it's hard as fuck to make a living in comics. Everyone who does is incredibly lucky, but you can, you know, like 
that slow trickle up of the nerds taking over. Like now a lot of the store owners are those guys who used to, you know, run the register. So it's, it's fun to, to see all that stuff. And thank God that there was never like a Barnes and Noble for comics or something that would have driven all of them. You know, comics is such a weird fucked up small business that, you know, like, cause I was working at a bookstore when Borders and Barnes and Noble took over the world and all these bookstores just went out of business. And now they're building back because Barnes and Noble and Borders and all those things went bankrupt. You know, I think Barnes and Noble is owned by someone else now. <laughs> like some British company. I think that's uh, one of the strengths of comic books. When we say comic book stores, it's like, really, it's, you know, a couple of thousand little entrepreneurs who all run their businesses yeah, kind of unique to how they figure it's a bunch of smart people that run these things individually. And, yeah. you know, from a survival standpoint, that's actually a brilliant strategy. You know, like you think of like how life yeah. works, like that's actually a good take, thing. Take care of you. Like, like yeah, you do. You each store is is dependent on what the owner, even even like a chain of stores like eight or that has like eight or nine stores. They're all dependent on the owners and managers and their tastes and you know, what they think comics should be like, there's 25, you know, or so really, really big stores that when you go in, you're just like, holy shit, these guys do it right. And then you're like, if you really add it up, you're like, oh, there's like $10 million worth of books on the shelves in here. So, you know, not every store can do that. But yeah, my whole life growing up, you go to comic stores and it was just hit or miss what you were going to get. It was like, you could walk into this hole in the wall where there's like a guy eating a burrito behind the counter and just stacks of back issues everywhere and no lighting, you know, or you could walk into <laughs> comic relief where you're just like, holy shit, this is like fucking Mecca. They have everything. So yeah, it is a weird thing, but yeah, I think the fact that nobody ever sort of drove them out of business with the chain stores and, you know, everyone who owns a comic store just really loves comics and wants to do that. But now in the bookstore markets too, like all those indie bookstores have graphic novel sections and, you know, 10 years ago, whoever was in charge of that graphic novel section didn't know anything about comics. You know, they just ordered whatever the reps told them. Now you go into like, uh, you know, there's a bunch of bookstore like um, uh, Skylight Books in uh, LA. Like if you go in there, like their, their graphic novel section is huge. And the guy who curates it knows what the fuck he's talking about. There's a bunch of stores now that you know like once you get someone who knows what 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 it's like i have a bunch of stores telling me the fade out is still one of their top selling graphic novels like in the bookstores like if they they put it on their list every christmas as like one of the graphic novels to buy and it, they sell hundreds of them and i'm like holy shit no wonder that book keeps moving because no we're not talking about it we're not pushing it <laughs> like i keep having to take it back to print and i'm like huh it's just like a mainstream looking graphic novel that Zadie Smith said something nice about. So, <laughs> you know. 10th tenth, tenth year anniversary edition coming up. Uh, in a, in a oh, yeah, years. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's probably, yeah, that's probably true. Good reason to bring the hardback back. <laughs> well, I think we're up on like about the 35th anniversary of Pajama Chronicles or something. So, so. Oh, my God. I can't believe you went that deep. <laughs> so, so I was we waiting. Need, we need to go uh, go on the hunt for extra copies of that, man, to get slabbed. Yes, <laughs> cover colored with pop rocks or something i yeah that was uh that was in the days of blue lines for your cut for your covers actually Ooh, yeah that one you didn't you didn't uh 
there's nothing online about my issue of Gumby 3D, is there? <laughs> was that a Blackthorn as well, or a Kamiko? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was working at Comic Kingdom, my friend and I got asked to draw a story for Gumby 3D. That was like my first professional gig, because the guy who was drawing the comic was behind schedule. And he gave us printouts from the episode of the cartoon we were adapting that like back in the mid eighties, they were like this really slick, gross paper. He'd like freeze framed the whole episode and printed out like a thousand like things. And we had no concept of deadlines. I remember he came in like three months later screaming at us cause we'd been so late on the deadline for this 12 page Gumby thing. <laughs> the Gumby Renaissance of the eighties, man. I was there. Yeah. Art Cloakie represent. Yeah, the Gumby Renaissance. It was it was Art Adams, I guess, right? Yeah. He brought Gumby back. <laughs> and, and Eddie Murphy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's hilarious. Jim, you, yeah, you know what? Let, let, I'll be Gumby real fast, too. and this is all I've got. Um, one, oh, okay. I, I always think of you with Charles Williford and like his uh, Hope Mosley books. Oh. Is that something that's on your radar? Is that uh, a writer? Um, yeah, I love Williford. Um, I've read a couple of those books for sure. I mean, I he's one of the he's one of the all-time greats um there's a there's a great movie uh called the woman chaser that's based on one of his it's like the movie is only 72 minutes long or something <laughs> like that and it's shot in 16 millimeter in black and white but um it's about a used car salesman who decides to become a filmmaker but he refuses to compromise ever it's wow. it's amazing. It's from like the late '90s. It's by that guy who did the movie, who did the documentary about the people who are obsessed with fucking horses. Oh yeah, I know that documentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course, yeah, that makes sense. But, um, but yeah, no, I love yeah, I love Williford. Yeah, I'm like a classic noir kind of guy. I, I've been rereading a bunch of like uh, Elmore Leonard or reading a bunch of Elmore Leonard books that I'd never actually read before that were super popular in the '70s and '80s. I read like the later Elmore Leonard stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm a, you know, I read, a, I go through phases where I don't read anything but like nonfiction because uh, it's more inspiring in some ways or you just need to for research, um, which I always think is one of those things that no one ever talks about with, you know, comic book writing or comic book drawing is the amount of research that people should actually be doing. And you know, and TV too. It's like you hear all these comments about like, oh, so and so, so and so shouldn't write this story or shouldn't write that story. And I'm like, so and so should just research before they write the thing. You know, maybe maybe they should research what life was like for you know women in Hollywood in the '40s before they write a story about it. Um, but yeah, I, so I read a lot of nonfiction. But yeah, I especially during the pandemic, I've just been reading. You know, I think I, I must have caught up on like 10 years of Michael Connolly novels. And there's a guy who publishes a lot of books. Often they feel like the exact same book, but I kind of feel like that's part of the comfort of it. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And my last thing, and this is my, my big fanboy moment here. I love oh. Claire DeWitt. And I hear that you're oh. friends with Sarah Grant. Um, if it's oh, not yeah. too personal, how did you guys meet? Uh, Her... I was friends with Megan Abbott. I met Megan Abbott at like the Los Angeles Times Book Fair. We were sitting next to each other and I was a big fan. And I gave her a couple of my books and my email. I think I gave her like the first three criminal books and my email. And then um, 
like she emailed me like a couple weeks later and we just kept in touch through email and texting and stuff and would bounce ideas uh, for crime stories off each other and Sarah and Megan had like a blog that they were doing and I wrote uh, a thing about the great brain and Encyclopedia Brown for that um, and which I think I reprinted in like a, as an extra in a criminal thing or, or one of or one of the backs of one of our issues um, but it was about Encyclopedia Brown stealing the Wayback Machine and going back and having a, a a contest with the great brain <laughs> um but but uh sarah um moved was working in la on southland the tv show for tnt i saw her name on one of the episodes and i just wrote to megan and i said hey does your friend sarah live here and um and she said yeah i'll hook you guys up and we just me and her and my wife like went out for coffee one night and just hit it off and she's one of the people who i call up to ask for advice about stuff um but she's actually i think she's my wife's best friend at this point probably <laughs> um but uh yeah we i talk to her all the time yeah she's she's fantastic her new book is is really amazing uh it's called the book of the most precious substance and it's uh it's basically like uh it's it's got the same tone as a claire de Witt book but it's sort of like like if the Da Vinci Code were about fucking, it's like her version of like an erotic thriller. And she started her own publishing company to do it. And it's been like a pretty big hit for her, I think, actually. But yeah, I love those. Those Claire DeWitt books are just the greatest. She did this. Um, I'll try and find a copy of it and email it to you. She did a choose your own adventure thing a couple of years ago that she sent me a PDF for. And it's great because you, you want to choose your own thing, but then you go through and you read the whole thing and it all works as a short story too. Um, but yeah, she's, she's just one of those amazing like creative people. And she does a lot of work for TV and film, uh, the, some of it that we don't see and some of it that we do. Um, her and David Slade, the, uh, this other friend of ours made a pilot last year. Uh, with like Susan Sarandon and um, Kristen Glover was in it, <laughs> like, but it sounded like it was amazing. It was for HBO Max, but they didn't they didn't go through with it for some reason. Um, but it was like a all in one location murder mystery thing, like a. But it was she sold it pre Knives Out being a thing, um, but it was all it was called Mockingbird Lane, and it was all about this you know murder that happened in this house and. It was it was going to be really cool, but it didn't go forward. But yeah, she does she does a fair amount of like TV and film writing, so we get together and grouse about that. We used to go to the used bookstore together and then have lunch and grouse about writing and TV and stuff and who we hated and who we loved. <laughs> well, I enjoy her prose voice. It certainly seems like uh, kind of unique. You know, whenever I came across that, it stood out. So it's She's, very cool. Yeah, her and. Um, my friend Charles Yu, who he won the National Book Award last year for Interior Chinatown, his his weird experimental prose novel. Um, but her and Charlie are my two friends who every time I read anything they write, I want to murder them because they put words in the exact right order and it seems effortless. And, you know, like I try really hard to make my work look effortless because <laughs> it never is. Like I was up from 530 until right before we started this and I got like two pages done. <laughs> so it's one of the great lessons from the people that we interview, you know, like 
always talking to people at the, to the top of the game, and uh, it, it never comes easy. There's never like a um, cruise control, it seems. Oh, no. Yeah, I remember, uh, you guys know Steve Weissman? Yeah. Okay, so Steve and I, before I moved back, I was living in San Francisco. I would, I would spend the 90s sort of bopping back and forth between San Francisco and Seattle. And uh, when I was leaving San Francisco, the last time that I moved back to Seattle um, from from there, I guess not the last time. Well, one of the times in the 90s, we decided we were going to do the Schultz pilgrimage. And we got up, this was like 97, I want to say. And we got up and, and one of my roommates came with us and uh, my girlfriend at the time. And we got up at like five in the morning and drove up to Santa Rosa to go to the Warm Puppy Diner at the Empire Skating Rink or whatever. And my roommate went because she wanted to do ice skating. And she found out up until it was closed in the mornings for like professional ice skating practice because he built the thing for his daughter. who was like an Olympic skater. Um, and Steve and I are sitting there with, I've got my copy of more peanuts, the first edition like copy that I still have. And Steve has like, you know, one of his like peanuts digests that we've, you know, we spent the nineties, like in used bookstores, tracking down all the peanuts digests before Fanographics started reprinting all of them. Seth used to actually send out zines of the uncollected peanuts every year. That was like his Christmas present was he would spend half his time in the library finding the unreprinted peanuts strips where it's like Charlotte Braun is in it and stuff. Oh, yeah, man. So, you, um, so you prefer uh, Braun, not Brown. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a big Charlotte Braun fan. But we went up and made the, the you know, because it's like Schultz, no matter if you're a cartoonist, even if you've never tried to do a daily strip, like peanuts is, was part of your life in my generation. And we sat there and he was like an hour late showing up for breakfast and the waitress could tell we were like the cartoonist nerds. And she walked by and she's like, Sparky's running a little bit late today, guys. And um, eventually when we got up the nerve to finally go over and talk to him when he did arrive, we stood there and listened to him for a while and him and the manager of the place were grousing about a game that they'd played like the night before, like a seniors hockey game and about like the people. That, and I was like, I oh, sounds kind of grumpy. Maybe we should just leave. And we were like, well, we're never going to get a chance to meet Charles Schultz ever again. And so we both were like, uh, Hey, uh, like I'd never been so nervous to introduce myself to a person. And we were just, you know, he looked at us. And then the second we said we were cartoonists, everything about him changed. It was like, because clearly he couldn't get through a day there without tourists showing up and dragging him outside. He said the Japanese tourists would drag him outside to take pictures in front of the banners of Snoopy and stuff all the time. <laughs> I was like, well, you could say no. <laughs> but but um, it's like the only time I've asked someone for their autograph in my life, and I totally regretted doing it, but I just didn't know what else to say to him. But it took him so long to sign his autograph because he had that shaky thing. Um, but then when we were leaving, like he came out to his car, we were getting in our car and he was, we were trying to figure out what he'd be driving, which by the way, it was next year's Jag. 
Sure. It was not. It was not the station wagon. I was sure was Charles Schultz's car. <laughs> um, he's opening the trunk of his car, and for a second, I'm like, he's going to show us that he's got a shotgun and not to bother him again or something. And on the fucking uh, spare tire in the trunk of his car is a Sunday page he took home to work on over the weekend, and he showed us the pens that he used because you know he bought like. The pen was going out of the company was going to go out of business so he bought like a million of them or something in the 60s he, he let us hold his pens and hold the art and look at it and he was like looking over it and he's like oh, i really messed up that line and i was just like this guy is the greatest living cartoonist of all time and all he can talk about is how he's still trying to get better and not good oh it's, this isn't good enough and oh, i don't like the way that grass looks and you know, like, I, I just was just like, oh, it never fucking ends. <laughs> like, I remember that last interview with him on 60 Minutes when he talked about how he, he wished he could have drawn, like, um, the guy who did Captain Easy. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? You were so much better than that guy. <laughs> and I love Captain Easy. But, uh, but yeah, it was just like, man, cartoonists are, you know, they're all the fucking same from the top one down to the lowliest guy doing a zine you only see the stuff that you're like oh, i wish i'd drawn that panel better <laughs> there's a lesson there for sure yeah i'll say yeah. you good jimmy i am ed thanks so much for coming by uh can how do we point people to the newsletter or whatever else you you want to promote at this point? uh oh i recently got image to uh if if you go to my bio page on the image comic website there's a link to join my newsletter Awesome. Because I had no way to get people to join it for the last five years, uh, and people were still joining it somehow. So I don't. I think just people sharing it. I would often find myself unsubscribed to it accidentally somehow. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone, someone who I maybe forwarded one to, unsubscribed me while subscribing themselves. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah, just my bio page on the Image Comics website, and uh, yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I love talking about uh, comics with people who actually love comics and know a lot about the history of comics and stuff. And I, I wanted to ask you questions about your uh, influences, actually. Um, do we have a minute? Can I talk to you? Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. So Don Rosa at all as a kid? Oh, uh little bits but not really the uh the the duck comics if, if that's what you're yeah thinking. no 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 i was thinking the the stuff he did before that maybe yeah for sure absolutely okay because i always saw a tiny amount i was like is this my imagination because you could develop an art style that looks exactly like yours without that you know there's some guy who draws comics now who i couldn't believe did not like grow up reading bernie moreau comics but he'd never heard of the guy before. I'm like, you have his exact incline. There, but, you you uh, see that stuff, man. And sometimes when you make those implications, people are like, who is that? Mm -hmm. and yeah. It's like, what, really? Yeah, something about the the way your your compositions and inclines occasionally would remind me of like those old Pertwillaby paper stuff. I remember getting those from Fanographics when I was like a teenager. Just because we brought his name up in, and yeah, like that's some, some of the early Fanta comics I got. There at least was this series of YouTube videos where they're going through Don Rosa's house and showing off his collection and original art and stuff. It's pretty freaking cool, man. Oh man, I should look that up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's he's got a giant house, got a lot of ephemera, a lot of cool original art. 
beautiful studio. Yeah. Yeah, my friends were all in Portugal with him one year at the the art festival in Port in Porto, and they actually built Uncle Scrooge's money bin for the the room that had all the Don Rosa art. It actually had like a sculpture of Scrooge diving into the money bin and money splashing up. Like they go all out in they, Portugal. They take that shit for real everywhere but here. Like uh, where was oh, it? Oh yeah, it was it was a festival in Germany where it, w- it happened to be the seventieth birthday of donald duck they shut the festival down and they had it was almost like pallbearers really it was six people with a giant like piece of plywood with like a, a, the most the biggest cake i've ever seen in my entire life because they wanted to cut little slabs for everybody at the festival after that's amazing after singing happy birthday to uh donald duck in in german that's that's insane whereas at comic-con you go and you're like oh here's a thing for a tv show that has nothing to do with comics that's a huge display outside my hotel for some reason and and (laughs) and one more like in in denmark i'm I'm just it's all coming back oh yeah in denmark um it was the first time i ever went abroad like i literally got my passport to like go to denmark to this festival it's me it's frank quitely dan klaus charles burns chris ware Don Rosa. Oh, wow. And when we're over there, it's like we're all, you know, going off doing whatever we're supposed to do. And then I'm just checking things out, take a little bathroom break or whatever. You see the biggest line in the whole joint. Is it Frank Quitely? Is it Chris Ware? You know, is it Charles Burr? It's not. It's Don Rosa. Yeah. And he apparently yeah. couldn't walk down the streets in some Scandinavian countries because his picture was on in the paper so many times. He was like super famous as the new duck guy after Barks. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that. Like, I feel weird getting recognized at the airport on the way home from (laughs) Comic-Con. You know, just like really the only place I get recognized. I, every now and then, like someone will come over to do something at the house or something, like to fix something. And they'll be like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I write comic. And then I'm like, oh, I, you know, I used to write Captain America. I did that Winter Soldier thing. And then people flip out about that. And I, I met one of my neighbors recently walking down the street and my wife and I were talking to him and he's like, Ed, you're actually my hero. And for a second, my ego started to bloat up because I thought he was about to say that he was a huge fan of my comics. This guy's like 10 years older than me. And it turned out I was his hero because I walked down the street smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, God damn it. <laughs> my, my, I, I thought house, I had... my dad is super impressed that we're talking to the guy who wrote Westworld. Oh, oh yeah, that's a whole other nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> it had Telemann had seven timelines originally. <laughs> Not really, it had five. <laughs> um, well, all right, man. We could keep this going forever, man. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, we- absolutely. This is I love your guys's show, and uh, thanks for having me on it. I was so thrilled to see you were branching outside of uh, you know more talented people than me. <laughs> you know what we gotta do sometime, man. Because talking comics with you is super fun. If you come back back uh, one time when we got the camera face down, uh, we could break out some kind of cool comic. Like rather than just oh, yeah. share something in your newsletter about a meaningful comic, how about we break one of those out and just just oh, get, absolutely. get deep with it? I think that would be super fun. Yeah, man. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah, I love the craft stuff. <laughs>